but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Happy 2020, Curious Humans. I'm recording this from the north of Bali, where I've just spent a few days in silence, and I'm still getting used to the sound of my own voice. Over the last few months, a new venture has emerged that I'm calling Curious Leaders, and it will involve leading a series of emotional resilience masterclasses, mostly for startup founders and leaders. And we'll be going to San Francisco, Singapore, Sydney, London, and maybe some other locations. So stay tuned for these updates, and please do reach out if this is a subject that interests you. Okay, on to the conversation with Ed Dangerfield. This was quite possibly the most unique and outright fascinating conversation I've had to date. If you haven't already heard of Breathwork, I think it's fair to say that you likely will have by the end of the year. It's exploding in popularity, in much the same way that yoga and meditation has over the last decade. And I think for good reason. We'll get into it in more depth, but on a basic level, breathwork is the practice of changing your breathing pattern to shift your mental, emotional, and physical state. As you take deep, circular, connected breaths, continuously and without any breaks, in a surprisingly short period of time, you'll find yourself in a non-ordinary state of consciousness, where it's common for deep memories and emotions to surface in order to be reviewed, released, and integrated. What I really appreciate about Ed is his clinical approach that's backed by years of training, endocrinology research, and self-experimentation mapping out the human nervous system. Ed's a really good friend here in Bali, but to many others, he's also something of a miracle worker. My personal breathwork sessions have led to some pretty profound experiences, processing grief, unlocking tension, increasing my breath capacity, uh, even experiencing DMT releases and just being left with a really high degree of mental and emotional clarity. It sounds pretty good, right? (laughs) And there are several types of breathwork out there, but Ed's lineage and his style of teaching really resonates with me and I'll also be taking part in his 400-hour facilitator training later this year. So the aim of this conversation was to create something of a comprehensive beginner's guide to breathwork. And some of the areas that we dive into are his personal journey from being trapped in an avalanche and almost dying. And this led to him being a highly functional alcoholic and depressive, which was later the gateway into the breathwork world. We go into some of my personal experiences lying on his breathwork table. And he makes the really interesting case for why our thinking is directly influenced by our breathing and how he's been able to map certain emotions onto specific breathing patterns. And he also defines capacity and resiliency from the perspective of the nervous system. He shares what he's learned from living with the Canadian tribal elders. 
as well as some of the healing that he's witnessed from his time guiding sessions. There was a man who relived and processed a near drowning experience and stories of women who've been able to process experiences of sexual abuse. It's a really deep dive. And the reason for this slightly longer than usual introduction is that I believe it's a really important conversation and I urge you to listen all the way through. And please feel free to reach out to either of us if you have any thoughts or questions. All right, without any further ado, I give you Mr. Ed Dangerfield. So I'm sitting here with Edward Dangerfield, a nervous systems specialist and founder of Breathwork Bali. We met a few weeks back and I remember we were sitting just just at the table across here and I found myself wishing that we'd had a microphone during this first conversation. We, we dropped in for like for maybe like three or four hours, went off the deep end and I've really been looking forward to this round two for some time. And I think we're probably going to go into quite deep and nerdy places. But before we go there, I'd like to begin the conversation with a question I usually start off with, which is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, what were you curious about? Ah, thanks, Johnny. Yeah, it's um, really great to be back in this beautiful space again and to dive into some of the same, probably some more realms that we were discussing. Um, Yes, is the answer answer (laughs) to your first question. Yes, I've always been uh, curious um, as a child and also just generally, uh, yeah, I think that showed up in in play Mm. uh, and in uh, also this idea of truth, of seeking truth. It's always been something that I've been been following um, Mm. since I was really young. And uh, quite often I would find myself outside in nature and it was invariably in different realms of nature and playing. I remember like playing with water and the flow of water mm. as a child, like on the beach. And I was always fascinated by it, by that. And so the curiosity of the ways of nature and the laws of the universe mm. from a young age. Um, and that said, I went to a very structured private school in England, <laughs> which pretty much systematically beat the shit yes. out of me for that. So, <laughs> so I, I ended up I being funneled into mathematics and, uh, and yeah. things that probably weren't really my calling. Um, yeah. And then, and then sort of found my way into like interesting realms like design and, and woodwork, like when I was 16, 15, 16. And that was like a real passion for mm-hmm. me that I then also didn't pursue based on, um, kind of cultural beliefs mm, mm. Lack, yeah. of, lack of career progression and all those things yeah like how are you going to pay the bills like carving you know wood um that sort of interesting question which is uh obviously now really easy to answer um if you're a, you know if you're really talented gifted and pour your heart into you know carving wood then it will of course pay the bills and you will mm. flourish mm. which i understand now <laughs> to be my belief but at the time that wasn't so so yeah, doctor, lawyer, or banker was kind of more of a cultural emphasis mm. on where where it was good to go, mm. and probably more subtle and insidious than, than that clarity. But <laughs> <laughs> ended me up doing you know studying economics instead of you know being more curious. Uh, around me too, things. interestingly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 <Exactly> <laughs> same thing. Yeah. Um, were there any favorite books or stories um, that you read? that really resonated with you growing up that, that come to mind? Mm. Um, 
I know that sort of in my general family, Beatrix Potter and Winnie the Pooh were mm. like the two mm. kind of main things that were coming through as a child, but mm. not super memorable for me, to mm. be honest with you. Mm. Um, interestingly enough, like I can speed read and I love to read now and I, I, I just ingest books rapidly. Um, but when I was a child, books were not of interest to me. Uh, to the point where it was like a joke in my family. And my, my brother, who's two years older than I am, is like very intellectual and really enjoys books, mm. but always has done. Mm. So it's kind of been a, a returning to that for me with study, um, you know, probably more in the last kind of six, seven years where mm. I've really delved into reading and research and study. Mm. Yeah, because I was a kid and I wanted to play. <laughs> just saying <laughs> yeah more interested like throwing the books than reading yeah them. <laughs> exactly yeah like how does it fall how does it roll like you know how does it move in water like those would be more interesting yeah, things for me nice okay cool um so so that study and degree in economics somehow led you to become uh obsessed with skiing and living in in whistler and i know that there mm. was a a particular incident that that we've talked about before that was in some ways a kind of an inciting incident for the journey that you've been on in the in the last few years um so this is i realize this is a big question but could you take us back there to what happened in the mountains for mm. you and um maybe walk us through a bit of this this journey that has unfolded since yeah for sure so the um <clears throat> I suppose the bridge between like studying economics and moving to Canada was just a real need to escape. And, uh, you know, that was a sort of the major motivation was to just get out of the UK, probably get away from culture, certainly like at some element family as well, and just explore, I, I get away from the safety and um, boundaries and confinement that I perceived at the time. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I moved to Canada, I moved to Whistler to like you know, North America's like number one ranked ski resort. You know, I was this English kid, super like green, no idea what was going on, didn't understand like the mountains or snow and uh, turned up there and was just like blown away, like fully amazed at this winter wonderland and this opportunity to, to play and be creative. Hmm. And um, I fell into the restaurant industry and then could not claw my way out for a variety of different reasons. I loved it. was always been super passionate about cooking and food and loved sharing and hosting uh, in my own personal life. And so, you know, I fell into bartending and managing bars and restaurants and it was an opportunity to host people. It was an opportunity to, to be welcoming and hospitable. So I really enjoyed it. Mm. Uh, and then kind of on the side, you know, would ski in the day and work at night. So the lifestyle was great, some travel there as well. And yeah, what was one year, you know, flowed into then 10, <laughs> uh, which is kind of like the Whistler trap for a lot Funny of people. How that happens, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I became a Canadian citizen along the way, oh, wow. um, aligning more to the values of Canada than the UK in terms of cultural belief. Mm -hmm. um, it's a curious place to speak from whether I consider myself to be English or Canadian now. Mm. So, you know, that, you know, about 10 years in Whistler brought me to the incident that we're speaking of, which was a pivotal moment in my life. Um, and in fact, there was a lead up to it that is is also worth maybe mentioning a little bit around. I had been a restaurant owner for three years. Uh, a good friend of mine and I, we decided to open our own restaurant in Whistler, which is, uh, you know, a huge undertaking, a beautiful learning experience and hmm. uh, mm. some really fond memories, but like crazy challenging. Mm. Uh, and of course, it's on our edge where we really grow. And so about three years into that, I recognized that the way I was working and the style I was working wasn't serving me. But beyond that, I was starting to feel 
the level of stress in my life that was creating illness. Mm. And I started to connect with that more. And there was a deep feeling that something was wrong inside me. Mm. And so I, I made a decision to leave the restaurant and to sell out and to pursue other things, a different way of life and a different way of living. And initially that dream was going to be to um, create with my, with my family a, a farm and cottage business in Portugal that would be uh, organic, sustainable restaurant and cottages. Mm. And that was kind of the prayer. And so set that intention and um, that was going to happen sort of May or June of that year. And then in March, a pivotal moment was being caught in an avalanche. Mm. Oh, deep breath. So that was, I just dive back into that. Um, the, there's very little emotional charge uh, with the memory and with speaking of it, but I am very aware of how story can be evocative to the underlying emotion if it hasn't been fully released in an event. Mm. And so now I can speak to this um, six years later quite clearly, but at the time and thereafter, it was uh, obviously a super harrowing experience, mm. uh, almost dying, uh, the whole mountain side coming down with me. And in terms of avalanches, it wasn't severe. We put it at a class two, which means I was lucky enough to stay on top, um, tumbled a couple of times, but eventually when everything stopped, I was only buried up to my chest. So only up to yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which you know, like compared to a full burial or a full burial for some time, sure. you know, is like yeah, as child's play in the mountains, especially. And I mean, I guess you know that's a really great example of like the kind of environment that I was in. Like mm -hmm. we were skiing, like you know, onto the edges. We were, you know, I was doing a lot of um, self-propelled ski touring, snowmobiling, uh, using sleds to access terrain. Wow, and a lot of skiers were skiing some really interesting and challenging and difficult things. And so I was certainly not at that level, but I was on the edges of it and exploring in that way. Mm. Um, and what was, you know, a very normal and easy section to ski that I'd skied probably a hundred times in my life became a pivotal moment. Mm. The essence of why it was so profound was the quality of the fight flight response that fired in my body. So a huge amount of adrenaline. Mm which led to me fighting and then swimming for my life, mm -hmm. you know, down a, a, a mountain side, which was moving, which was like a really interesting sensation. Mm. So it was obviously huge amounts of panic, um, gasping for breath and moments where I was under and unsure if I was going to go under or stay up. Mm. And then the essence of the problem wasn't so much that I was caught in an avalanche, but it was just how I didn't get emotionally complete on it and how the trauma didn't have an opportunity to actually be fully felt and release. Mm. And at the time I was totally oblivious to this um, and unaware of how to heal trauma. And so I started to live with the essence of an avalanche running in my system. You weren't prepared for that with your economics degree? Yeah, you believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my economics degree did not prepare me for how to, how to navigate the aftermath of like right. a, a near-death experience. Yeah. And so after that, um, interestingly enough, I did see a friend of mine who's a trauma specialist. And, okay. and uh, we did release a large amount of what was held in my system. Mm. And so the essence of a suppressed memory that's anchored with a large charge of emotion that lives in the body will continue to create that adrenaline response. Mm. So what was evident is I had high tone adrenaline continuing. Um, and that event was fairly easy in and of itself to heal. But what happened was the recognition that 
it, it basically broke the dam and it broke the dam of my whole life, mm. which was everything that I'd ever suppressed. Mm. And so that was then stepping back into all other patterns and conditioning. Mm. Ultimately that led me down a rabbit hole of my whole life, which has been <laughs> the last six years in mm. essence. And now I feel interestingly enough, like in the last month, Johnny, it's like, I feel like I'm really complete on mm. so much. Wow. Um, being able to see with a totally clearer lens than previously. Mm. So post avalanche, it was like, okay, um, I've got a boatload of shit stored in me mm. and I know it can come out. And then it was just like, how does the body do that? How do I do that? Mm. And yeah. What was it like when you started kind of tugging on it? I, I've got an image of like mm. putting on a thread and like more and more coming and then realizing that it's connected to yes all of this other stuff like what was that like for you and how did it show up in your kind of lived experience um yeah thank you um it showed up mostly as as becoming an alcoholic Mm. um and so just the necessity to have uh at least one drink a day to get through the day um and and so you know highly functioning but at the same time very addicted and the, the recognition at that time, there was a lot of self-judgment around that. It was probably uh, actually ironically quite good medicine. Um, you know, just being able to get certainly through the day and then hitting like five or six o'clock and actually just having a beer mm. and just doing that consistently every day. But there was a reliance and there was an addiction on the fact that I was really going through a process of like churning up mm. and digging mm. Um and at that moment, it was no longer a choice. And that was a fascinating piece. It's, you know, it was moving. And there was a wisdom that was moving it within me that, you know, I couldn't really shift or change. From the elements of, you know, some later teachings that I discovered, you know, around the Canadian native tradition of the four directions. So medicine wheel teaching of body, mind, emotions, and spirit. And so there's a recognition that, um, the deeper parts of me were starting to speak louder than my mind could suppress. Mm. Wow. What's coming up for me is like, it's, <laughs> it's almost like the, it kind of unlodged this, this inner avalanche of sorts and you were oh, using yeah. drink to try and like hold that at bay and to like, like keep the, keep everything in place. And it's like more and more started to kind of fall and, yes. and shift. Were there any, were there any kind of subsequent turning moments or maybe like low um, lows during that period that led you to kind of face this more directly and to kind of tackle this head on? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, certainly the low points are the turning points. And uh, I also know that, um, yeah, that, that meant hitting the bottom and that meant pretty much hitting the bottom of the bottle. Mm-hmm. And that was a decision, you know, as you rightly recognize that like there's only so much numbing we can do Mm. Uh, there's also a quality of like numbing versus feeling into the pain and there's a a, a balance almost a pendulation between those two Mm. so i think one of the big pivotal moments was the recognition that i was in a codependent relationship and that that wasn't serving me either um and that's a really old program uh, that i'd been running for some time um and then, of course, you know, with dysfunction in my nervous system, ultimately what was moving into like anxiety, moving now into depression and uh, a fairly heavy usage of alcohol, um, 
plus a toxic relationship, some some big pieces had to shift in my life. So at the time I was I was in Europe at the time, uh, I was in Portugal actually. Right. And uh, I made a decision to basically leave everything, to drop everything and to move back to Canada. Mm. And with the sole intention of, of getting my shit together, which meant therapy, which meant healing, which meant actually seeking you know, quality support from professionals in all realms. And so, yeah, I dropped everything I dropped everything being like, I walked away from a marriage and, uh, I walked away from my parents who were in that project in Portugal and I moved back to Canada and, uh, I moved back the year previously, as I kind of mentioned, I'd owned a restaurant and, you know, I, I was married and I was, you know, skiing every day and, and I had an, a really nice apartment. And I moved back to Canada the following year. It had been one year later, basically like a big fucking roller coaster. <laughs> and then I got back and it was just like, I was living in a four bed dorm in a hostel, hmm. you know, which was of course winter. So it's like cold mm. and, and, you know, damp. And, um, and I was bartending at a restaurant that I used to work at before I opened my own restaurant. Mm -hmm. And one of my friends is like, he, I remember he, said like how are you doing this aren't you aren't you feeling shame around mm -hmm. the fact that you've come back here and it wasn't really said with a quality of care it was more like you know you've really fallen and you've fallen a long way kind of thing and and uh i was i remember answering with such clarity that i i felt free mm -hmm. and i felt happy mm -hmm. and it was just this simple life and i started to ski again and i started to mm -hmm just bartend four nights a week and I started to explore a path of healing um, which was yogasana meditation and then I started initially just working with a biofield energy healer who I then started to train with so that was like a pivotal moment returning to Canada and dropping like everything that I had been including the ego encapsulated identity of a restaurateur mm. just kind of nice to suddenly just be like the essence of, of no one again um, and not a label of a husband and not a label of, you know, an entrepreneur. There was just a total sense of freedom that I could just mm. actually, you know, just be with me and uh, enjoy life again. Mm. I, I love that. It, it's almost like, um, so I, I read that Ramdas passed away recently um, last night and he talks about how we, we build up this, these qualities of somebodiness and how we, you know, we kind of project our, pers our personalities on the world. And sometimes these intense experiences and events, they strip away mm. those identities. And what we're left with is like the, the essence of who we really are. And it sounds like that's kind of what you were kind of that's returned cool. back to. Yeah. This sense of like the, the simplicity and the, the essence. And from that, that's, it sounded like that was then the foundation for the path of healing that you then kind of went down yeah thanks jenny it's a I, I love looking at it in that way for me there's a real quality where it's like um i didn't change my mask fell off mm. but it was more like my masks and when i look at masks i look at maladaptive behavior i look at you know things that i used to do to to live because i thought that was the only way mm. ultimately to have my needs met mm. and yeah. as i started to peel those away more and more and continue on this journey this like really deep journey of introspection to find that true essence of me mm. and then to create balance mm. so yeah it's that that sort of started out 
with working with a, a really powerful healer who had studied biofield energy healing um, in quite a Western clinical way. So hands-on and hands-off. Um, and the capacity to sense into a limb and feel the polarity. So feel which way energy was moving and the subtle energy of qi in Chinese medicine. Um, and also had studied meditation for three years. And so I started to work with her and, and worked with her every week. I had a treatment one or two hours. And um, that now looking back on that, I see that with so much more clarity and understand what was going on. But at the time, it just felt right. And I continued to pursue that mm. along with um, a path of Ashtanga Yoga mm. um, in the Jiva Mukti tradition. Um, and, and at the time I made some shifts, I, I stopped drinking and uh, I went paleo. So it was like a full like, like delving into reliance on sugar, alcohol and all other substances. And it was a very cleansing period of my life. Um, yeah, for, for, I guess like, you know, on and off for a year and a half, I moved in and out of some interesting, um, I guess, protocols and, mm -hmm. and regimens. Yep. Yeah. And yep. a lot of structure and rigidity was needed to create uh, self-discipline and cultivate a deeper sense of listening. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that almost sense of kind of self-experimentation as well. Yeah, well, that's what started to happen. I was just like, <laughs> all right, let's get into this. Let's see what happens if I, you know, eat a certain way. Yeah. How does it make me feel? And using that felt sense as my inner compass and exploring that more and more, mm. what, it, what it led me to believe and understand was how disconnected I had been from myself, mm. by self, you know, my emotional self, but also like eating when I was hungry versus eating on a timetable. Mm -hmm. And just like little subtle things about how, you know, if someone had projected onto me in my childhood, you must be hungry. I'd been like, oh, I must be hungry, as opposed to saying, are you hungry? And that inquiry and the continuous inquiry around a feeling state yep. that might not have been present in my childhood. Yeah, yeah. And, and almost like we're, um, I mean, I can certainly relate to the, the sense of being fairly unaware to everything that happened from like the neck down <laughs> until, <laughs> until relatively recently. <laughs> totally, bro. <laughs> and, and just, just yeah. being like ignoring all of that feedback that comes, whether it's yes. in the form of, of hunger pangs or or anger or you we know whatever these things are and just learning to listen to that more totally. um, that's been a big part of my journey and yeah well firstly i just want to say thank you for for sharing some of your experience and i think in in the people that i've spoken to before and in my own life it's often these intense and quite traumatic experiences that radically alter the trajectory of our lives and send us down these these rabbit holes um and I was thinking kind of uh, before you arrived that this, the title of this podcast is probably going to be How We Breathe is How We Think. Uh -huh. And this is a fairly bold claim that I've heard you make before. <laughs> and I'd like to spend a lot of this conversation just like unpacking that pretty audacious claim. So where would you begin to make the case for this to curious but potentially skeptical listeners um and it might also help to kind of define terms like neuroplasticity and yeah. epigenetics and things like that Amazing, so um, I'll, I'll hand the i'll hand the mic over to you yeah <laughs> thanks jimmy um so yeah i think one of the first things to say is you know the, the backstory of um <clears throat> what i went through only has relevance because i know how to self-regulate my system now otherwise i'm just sort of you know complaining about what happened in my life <laughs> and one of my teachers said it's only really relevant in sharing our own lived experience when we understand the lesson huh. 
Otherwise, ultimately, what are we doing other than airing dirty laundry? And so it's like all of that happened to me. And yes, like it really happened to me for a reason. Mm. And I, I see that with clarity now. Mm. And I understand the gifts that I received through all of those traumatic experiences. Mm. And the essence of it is this deep understanding and inner standing of the fact that how, how, we, <laughs> how we breathe is how we think. So, yeah, you, you landed me in it and I have to back up this statement. And it's, it's a statement I make at the beginning of speaking quite often. Um, and I like to, f I like to engage people in following the path of how breathing can change thinking. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, starting with defining two terms, um, which are really powerful. And the first one's neuroplasticity, as you mentioned. So neuro for, uh, neuron, neurological, the nervous system in general, the pathways, um, of information and the way that we transfer information within our body. Uh, both the brain and throughout the limbs, spinal cord, etc., and plasticity, um, plastic for malleable, changeable. So the idea is that our nervous system is malleable and changeable, mm. and our brain is as well. Mm. And so um, Hebb's law states that um, neurons that fire together wire together. Mm. And so when we continually think in a repetitive pattern we will continue to think in that pattern and we can think of it like grooves on a record like they become deeper the more we think into them yeah the fascinating piece for me around that was was i'd heard neuroplasticity in context of meditation the brain but i mm. hadn't applied it to the nervous system and to our spine and to you know the rest of the body yeah thanks i think um yeah like a really good one would be like hitting a tennis ball or a golf swing or skiing for that matter mm. you know like mm. the first time we do it we have so much conscious awareness has to be present with everything that we're doing yeah. And then as we repeat the action over and over again, it becomes hardwired into us neurologically. And that's a movement pattern that's present in the subconscious mind. So that's like, we don't have to think about how we back out of our driveway when we've done it 40 times. We just know how to do it. Hmm. And, uh, and then if we actually think about it, we can't do it as well as if we, if we don't. Yeah, totally. So, you yeah. know, there's a beautiful book, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm -hmm. and it goes into... You Dan, know, Danny Kahneman. Yeah, exactly, right? And so how, how those, those processes are present between conscious and subconscious mind. Mm -hmm. So neuroplasticity, yeah, present in everything, including our breathing pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the other term that we just kind of mentioned is epigenetics. Um, so Bruce Lipton's a huge hero of mine in the field of um, studying cell biology. And the recognition that cells communicate through the wall and not through the nucleus. Hmm. And so the, it's, the information is held in the cell wall. So when one cell bumps against another, it actually transmits information. Uh, so that's one of his great you know, discoveries. But beyond that, epigenetics is this idea that the container creates a change in how cells develop. Hmm. And so... Some obvious examples would be like um, taking two twins and one of them gets, you know, gets to grow up in Bali with great nutritious food by the beach with loving family. And the other one grows up, you know, with a single parent who's struggling in, in a city environment with, you know, potentially some cultural discord or violence on the street. And what we'd notice is that the two people by the age, say, of 16 would look totally different. Even though the genetic code is identical, mm -hmm. the environment, the container with which they've been in has activated different strands of their DNA in a different way, such that they would walk differently. They would obviously talk differently. Um, they would think differently. 
and their capacity for emotional regulation would be totally different. Mm. You probably have a hipster moustache here in Changu as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and some tattoos by yeah, the age yeah. of 16. Yeah, be riding a scooter. Vegan. Yeah, for sure, vegan. Yeah, versus, yeah, who knows? But <laughs> so, so the idea that these two twins would be totally different um, indicates to us that our environment's having an impact on, on the whole nervous system. Yeah. So the nervous system, which is, you know, responsible for subconscious processes of movement, including uh, breathing, um, digestion, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, mm. uh, everything, uh, how we're receiving information, our capacity to see whether our vision is wide or narrow. Really? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so you know, I've worked with an optometrist and it's quite fascinating to recognize how fields of vision narrow when someone's under a fight-flight response. So that they, we don't scan, we, we don't scan for threats anymore. We're more direct and vigilant on what is a perception of a target. So our peripheral vision actually narrows depending on how stressed we are. Uh, that, uh, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah, sympathetic, like fight or flight, it's more important that yeah. we're like laser focused. And, totally. Yeah, yeah. so when we're parasympathetic grazing, we can have peripheral vision mm. and that's an evolution out of our mammalian responses. So, mm. you know, getting into the two branches of the nervous system, sympathetic and parasympathetic, you know, one's essentially activating and one's resting. Yep. And we can tie those directly to our breathing. So the inhale is activating and the exhale is relaxing. So if we take a nice full inhale, then we're going to activate. An example of that would be a yawn. Mm. So when we're tired, we have a tendency to yawn, which means we're going to inhale. And when we want to relax, we can sigh, which is letting out and dropping of the exhale. So those would be the two most obvious spectrums of the breath. So how we breathe is how we think. Um, <laughs> coming, back exactly. coming back to that claim. Uh, when we inhale, we're activating. And when we exhale, we're relaxing. The rhythm and balance of our breathing has a direct impact on our nervous system. And our nervous system is directly impacting our endocrine system. The endocrine system being our gland system. Mm. Gland function, of course, changing hormones, which are chemicals in our bloodstream, which I think is a song. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we can Google that later. Uh, but chem the, chemicals the, the, changing... The jingle to this podcast, maybe. <laughs> yeah, chemicals. <laughs> so the chemicals moving in our bloodstream, of course, are going to mobilize us for action, but they're also going to have an impact on brain function specifically yeah. on the amygdala and the capacity of us to access the prefrontal and neocortexes mm. areas for logic reasoning compassion and empathy including um what would be the pituitary gland uh in sort of the frontal midbrain which we've associated now as our capacity to actually be able to have the quality of empathy mm. so our capacity to recognize someone else's emotional response to something else mm. Um, so that's great that that comes offline when we're in a big fight flight response, because it means that we don't care about other humans. We just are all about protecting ourselves really lousy in a work environment or in a relationship. <laughs> and so how we're breathing is changing our endocrine system, which is changing blood chemistry. Our blood chemistry is having an impact on the areas and gateways of our brain that are available to us. So it's impacting our thinking mm -hmm. along with sight and hearing how we breathe is how we think. Hmm. So the implication for that is interesting because with neuroplasticity, our breathing changes over time and our breathing is malleable. So when we're born, invariably, depending on the quality of in utero uh, trauma and birth trauma that a child sustains, will have an impact on how they breathe when they are first born. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the breath pattern invariably is full and deep. We breathe into the belly, all the way down into the pelvis and then up through the heart space. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful cyclical rhythm of breath. 
And as we move through life, neuroplasticity dictates that that might change. Mm. Um, a really obvious example of that would be like an appendix surgery, which mm -hmm. is, you know, obviously the appendix located in the right hip. When we get cut open in an area, we're going to have uh, protection to not breathe into that space because of the pain. So it's going to limit our breathing down into the right hip. Interesting. Um, so that shift will then create a change in how that area is receiving breath and blood flow, mm -hmm. which is going to have an impact on the glands in that area and how massaged they are, mm -hmm. which is going to have an impact on also the digestion of, of uh, uh, sending colon in the right side. Mm -hmm. So if we don't relearn re and re-pattern how to breathe into that area post an appendix surgery, we're going to find there'll be stagnation, mm. which would then lead to something like potentially Crohn's disease, as I've witnessed with some of my clients. Wow, that's super interesting. And um, yeah, most doctors that I've been to have not given me breath advice following, <laughs> following surgeries. Yeah, totally. I mean, any <laughs> surgery does require us to re-pattern the breathing. Because, yeah, well, you know, we're breathing between 21 and 26,000 times a day. Yep. And after a surgery, there's discomfort. So if the pattern has been shortened and shifted and changed after a surgery, mm. we need to repattern and we need to actually train our breath to move back into that space. Mm. And there's a variety of different ways we can do that. Um, mm. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And one of the concepts that you shared recently was um, how the seven chakras that the yogis talk about map fairly directly onto our endocrine system mm. and that by moving our awareness and our breath we're able to kind of regulate the hormones that are produced endogenously in these glands yes um is that approximately right and can you kind of add some color to how that how that looks yeah that's that's totally accurate Johnny. That's, i've been paying uh, attention yeah that's good thanks for coming to the talk <laughs> so yeah the essence for me is um you know when i started studying yoga and, and there was this idea of the chakras it was like this ball of whirling light or energy or vortex or something very mystical yeah, yeah. and that didn't really work with my you know background in economics i i was so so i did my yoga teacher training here and i was asking questions perpetually and i think i annoyed the shit out of octavio our teacher, yeah. because i was constantly like but like but can you explain this from like a scientific Yes. And he tried, but nothing really landed. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So for me, the essence is really, it, it came about through study and research, but a lot of the work um, that I'm really appreciative and grateful for is the work of Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen and her um, school of BMC body mind centering. Mm -hmm. um, and that was introduced to me through the yoga teacher training that I did with um, embodied flow. And that's a really interesting blend of uh, body, mind, centering, tantric philosophy and hatha yoga. But it looks and delves into childhood developmental patterns and how we learn how to walk and move and the impact that that has on our breathing. And then ultimately the impact that, that has on tone and all of our organ systems. Mm. Um, Could you briefly explain what you mean by tone? Yeah, tone. Um, so the quality in rest of, say, a muscle so obviously we have an opportunity to tense or to be relaxed and so the tone would be what is the quality of us in rest and so our whole body will always have a varying tone depending on the nervous system mm. and the endocrine system so a preparedness a readiness um, with relaxation would be the ideal state that most of us would seek mm. it's we're able to act however we're also fairly relaxed I'm imagining like a there's a 
illustration of a lion here right mm. in front of us. Yeah. Imagine like like a lion that's kind of sitting down but might be ready to kind of yeah. run after a gazelle at some totally. point. <laughs> so, and you know, and it's fascinating. It's like, what would be the, how rapidly it would be able to fire its, its motor its, mm. um, nerves yeah. to actually move and mobilize. Now, if we're always in high tone, we're rigid. We can't, there's nowhere to go. And if we're always in low tone, we're depressed. And so what we're seeking is a malleability and availability for our tone to shift. Mm. Um, yeah, so BMC was really fascinating for that. It gave me an opportunity to delve into this idea that we can also map the human from ourselves. So I am a human and you're a human and there's some curious humans listening. <laughs> we have an opportunity to actually do our own self-experimentation. And this was very much the path that I took through teachings like BMC and breathwork was the idea that, okay, so we have this gland system and we can read about it in a book, but how, what is the actual felt sense? What is my somatic experience of whatever it is I might be doing? And how does that then become my truth? And circling back to this idea that I like to seek truth yeah. uh, in yogic philosophy, sure, truth can be from like a sage or a guru that has lived it and that we trust or that we've read from a scripture that we believe to be true. But for me, really, the most potent form of truth is the one that I've discovered myself. Yeah. And that's through my own lived experience. And so when it came to the chakras, um, it was really about bringing conscious awareness and breath into an area and discovering how it felt. Um, which is so far from a degree in economics. <laughs> and so it was kind of like the pendulum swung way back over yeah. the other side. You know, I dropped all of the left brain logical and I went into this exploration of movement yeah. and of, of being able to meditate into a space over time with one pointed focus such that I could then understand what that gland did. Yeah. So anywhere we bring our awareness is going to activate. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Could you give us some examples? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we can work through the chakras, Dan, you know, and, and here's the thing, this is an approximate translation that's based on the teachings that I've discovered. And some people, it's slightly different. The, the kind of the first and second chakras, there's some, it seems to be a bit of confusion generally around like who's claiming what's what here. And okay. it's all story. It's all made up. So it doesn't much really matter, okay. but it matters. Yeah, totally. So in my world, uh, the first chakra relates to the time period of zero to three in childhood development and is to do with the, our roots and being connected to the earth and grounded in the physical body. So as a felt sense of safety, and if during the time of zero to three, we weren't fully supported, held or nurtured, we might find that we're ungrounded or unable to connect through that space. In breath, it's directly related to the pelvic floor. And that's a thin sheet of muscle that, that moves when we breathe and we can actually breathe all the way through the pelvic floor. Uh, and in terms of the gland, it's actually a body and it's called the coccygeal body mm. and it sits right in front of the coccyx. In Western science, it's still very mysterious. In BMC, it has a felt sense of groundedness. Mm. And so it gives us a feeling of being grounded. So the opportunity is to become more aware with our conscious awareness of how we can presence ourselves into that space and breathe into it. Mm. So that's a quality of the pelvic floor moving and just that area being massaged. If we breathe into that space, we have an opportunity to feel a lot more grounded. Mm. And then maybe just jumping up um, to the fourth chakra of the heart, the thymus gland. The thymus gland is so strong in babies that they can't bring their hands together in front of it, the energy that's coming out and being emitted from it. And over time, it, it reduces 
Um, you know, Western science went through a phase of removing the thymus gland because it was thought to be, you know, either troublesome or not needed. Right, like you balance. did it with the spleen as well. And they yeah, were like, oh shit, actually we yeah. kind of need that. It's yeah, useful. and the appendix as well, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, you don't need your appendix. Well, why is it there if we don't need it? You <laughs> yeah. know, like it it's Evolution fucked up. Yeah, yeah. They just left it there. It's just like, it's a dead end of stored bacteria. Of course it's needed. It repopulates the colon after we've been sick. Yeah. So, so yeah, the thymus gland, thankfully, has a function. And also the heart is now being recognized as an endocrine gland in and of itself. Fascinating, yeah. Is, is that like the kind of heart, heart mass stuff, like the brain heart coherence yeah so hrv heart rate variability and and, and the heart brain coherence is, is a fascinating thing in and of itself yeah it's yeah and then the glandular function of the heart it, it has a capacity to change blood chemistry as well okay wow. which is i mean and this is just like we're barely scratching the surface like of what's really going on within each of us mm. which is amazing mm, mm, uh, yeah and, and terrifying at the same time yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, heart math's a little bit, <clears throat> uh, you know, fascinated with, um, measuring HRV as a beautiful baseline for, um, life expectancy. One of the most potent things that we can measure is, is HRV and we can really track how someone, you know, mm. potentially may, how long they're going to live and how well they're going to live. Uh, heart rate variability, um, directly tied to breathing. The essence is when we inhale, we're activating the endocrine system upshifts and the heart rate accelerates. And when we exhale, we downshift and the heart rate decelerates. So our heart rate's accelerating and decelerating with every single breath. And so HRV is actually an indication of breathing, mm. which is an indication of the nervous system. And so that's where we see on the heart rate monitor, it's actually a, it's actually a slightly irregular, it's like boom, 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 yep. boom, boom. So there is actually a quality of a wavering of the heart rate. And that's the variability that we're exploring. Got it. And so that's the balance of the inhale to the exhale. And so when we map that back to breathing, each breath pattern has a corresponding emotion mm. or emotional state. So when we explore those within ourselves, when we notice if we have like a really big voluminous inhale and exhale, and we're dropping the exhale, there's a lot of energy that starts to get moved and cultivated that would be similar to a fight flight response of running away from prey. And then if we slow our breath right the way down or suspend our breath, of course, that's going to model, say, um, a freeze response or near death or playing dead. Mm. And so the team and I in Canada have had an opportunity to model and map a variety of breath patterns, um, which is something I'd never recommend to anyone else. <laughs> but just, you know, when we were starting to get pretty fringe under this research, we already had really good baselines of, you know, we've been practicing Qigong and Yoga Asana and a lot of deep pranayamas. We created a lot of capacity and resilience in our own nervous systems and breathing. Yep. And then we just started to take ourselves into these really deep, non-ordinary states of consciousness mm. by changing our breath patterns and rhythms. Mm. And as we started to essentially experiment on ourselves and that more and more we recognized how profound the changes in blood chemistry could be mm. um you know and i'll be clear i have and do pass out on occasion um which is obviously taking it beyond the window of tolerance and out of my edge which is why i don't recommend any of the breath practices that i teach other than in person <laughs> and ideally in a one-on-one -on -one situation <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, wow. I mean, I um, this is actually what I really wanted to dive into. And I love this idea of being able to map emotions onto these specific breathing patterns. And I think that your, your like magic, your wizardry is this capacity to 
read people's breath and translate that into feelings that they might be repressing or mm. perhaps traumas that they've been through. Mm. So could you share maybe some examples of this? Like imagine that I'm lying on your breathwork table or maybe one of the listeners. What are some of the, the common patterns that you, that you might look for or that you might notice? Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Um, so there's a clear distinction between what we call a conscious and subconscious breathing. So conscious would be, you know, a prescribed technique like a pranayama, which would, you know, be from the Indian lineages and tantric lineages or, mm-hmm. you know, Chinese breath retention, breathing into the dentien, something like that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, more popularly now that's really common would be the Wim Hof method. Yep. So these are all prescribed conscious techniques for creating a change in the system. The other op- opportunity for us is to actually explore the subconscious pattern of breathing, which doesn't allow any conscious mind involvement. And without going too deeply into the technique here online, because it's not something that I believe in sharing, um, there's an opportunity for us to actually observe and witness the subconscious breathing of anybody. And when that very simple technique is present, what we can see is that uh, the breath moves in a very specific way, depending on the behavior and pattern and thought processes of the individual. Mm -hmm. I.e. like we can see neuroplastically where they are holding attention and where they're free. So as an example, if I lie someone on the table down who has um, practiced a huge amount of yoga asana and also has let go of their controlling patterns, we're going to see that their breath is full, deep, and they breathe through potentially all of their energy centers. So their breath moves down into the pelvic floor, the first diaphragm, through the third diaphragm of um, the rib cage, and the vocal cords are clear, clear and free, which means they let their exhale go without sound. Mm. So that would demonstrate clarity and it would demonstrate dynamism in their breath, which shows that they can be dynamic in life. So the art for me, the art of yoga is being able to meet any energy with the energy that it needs to be met with. Mm, yeah. Like right response. Yeah. And that continuous of continuation of right response is available if our breath pattern is malleable, because we can change our breathing to change blood chemistry to create the right response. Yeah. Fascinating. So someone that hasn't done that, I might lie them on the table and when I look at their breath, yeah, there's an opportunity to see where there's holding intention. So the first thing that I kind of, you know, would look for in my own practice, uh, I'll overview the whole breath pattern. So I'll see where they're, how deep they're breathing down into the pelvis, mm-hmm. how much the rib cage is moving, mm-hmm. how much breath is moving into the heart mm-hmm. and how much breath is being held or controlled in the throat. And then reading that and mapping that, we can start to understand what's actually going on within the nervous system and what is habitually being created in every breath that's being habitually created in their life. Mm. So a really obvious example would be like a cesarean. Um, So a woman that's had a cesarean is just given birth to a child in a cesarean way. Mm. It's... um, it's not to be taken lightly. It's one of the most profound and huge operations that any human can go through. Mm. And the recovery um, is, is, in my opinion, grossly uh, un- underrated and overlooked in, in our culture. And it's, it's massive and it needs quality support. Um, one of the things that I immediately notice with a woman that's coming in that's given birth in the style of cesarean is that the breath doesn't move into that area. Mm for the obvious reason that it's been cut open and it needed to heal. And so the breath pattern stopped moving for a very good reason. Mm. They stopped breathing down into that lower area. Mm. And of course, what the implications are huge. There's no breath moving down through the small and large intestine. 
And of course, you know, none of the first chakra, including the genitals, are receiving breath. The pelvic floor starts to become stagnant. Mm. And so that has a huge implication on feeling grounded, feeling safe. And then the second chakra qualities of abundance mm. and creativity. And of course, the womb space in and of itself. Mm. And so I can lie someone down and look at their breathing and probably ascertain, you know, if they've had a kid or potentially, you know, if there's some sexual trauma in that space. Mm. Uh, and if that space has been in some way suppressed or repressed. And then similarly, you know, we can look up into the throat, the throat space, the thyroid and parathyroid glands of the fifth chakra. And we can look in here if there's a quality on the exhale, whether it's like a, a Darth Vader breath. And so, yeah, you know, the victorious breath of fire, Ujjayi, that's taught in yoga is amazing for cultivating heat. heat yeah. 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 And it creates heat in the whole system, which mm. is an acidification as well. Mm. And so what's really fascinating is, you know, we're now starting to become aware of the importance of the alkalinity acidification of the body. For sure. Cancer growing in an acidic body. Yep. Cancer not growing in an alkaline body. And so when we recognize um, the number one thing that we consume in our lives is, is actually oxygen. We breathe 21 to 6,000 times a day. We eat three meals. Um, so it's like <laughs> we have so many protocols for food, but really it's all about breath. Like that's really what's sustaining and creating balance in our lives. And so, yeah, when we look at um, the throat space, we can see if there is a continuous ujjayi in the subconscious pattern, there will be a retention of heat, which will impact the thyroid and parathyroid glands, including so weight balance. heat and acidity. Yeah. Okay. And beyond that, we're holding onto the exhale. The exhale, of course, is relaxing. So we're not allowing that full relaxation response mm. of the parasympathetic system. Mm. So we're living in a higher tone mm. in, in the whole body system, the nervous system and endocrine system, mm. which will lead to acidification of the body, mm. which creates an environment for cancer to thrive in. Mm. Mm. And so we can rapidly see if someone lets go of their control pattern of the throat, it will create a higher tone in the parasympathetic nervous system, which mm. will create more of a relaxation response, which creates more balance and harmony in our life. Mm. And invariably that would be tied to, you know, other areas, other centers of the body, potentially the third energy center of a fear response that's being held in the liver or overactive adrenal glands. From as an example, someone that was caught in an avalanche yeah, and never is, complete. Yeah, what happened to yourself? Yeah. yeah so yeah. always that low tone consistent adrenaline pumping through my system and yeah. creating, you know, ultimately discomfort and then what would have led to disease. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Um so let's let's say as a as a concrete example, maybe for some some listeners who are still trying to like wrap their head around this. This fascinating brain dump of, of information. <laughs> let's let's say, um, I mean, in, in my experience, I, I have a lot of friends who are startup founders who mm. right now, a, a lot of them are going through depression and, and anxiety is, is really kind of on the rise. Um, and going to a traditional doctor, they might pr prescribe Xanax um, or, or something along those lines. But I feel like you're saying that there's a way that we can kind of heal the root and the, the cause of this anxiety, um, what would this process look like? And if, if, a, if a startup founder who, was, who had kind of chronic anxiety and low-level stress, if they came to you, what, what might that look like in mm. a kind of hypothetical Thanks, scenario? Man. Yeah, the, you know, there's sort of a couple of different things that are servicing. One is sort of how to treat anxiety, and the other one is like um, sort of anxiety in general, and then the other one is like a treatment protocol. Okay. And so firstly, unpacking anxiety. Anxiety is normally 
we can all agree that it's a felt sense sensation that lives in our third energy center. It sort of makes us feel like, you know, just below the ribs. And, yeah, yeah. some tightness in that space. Yeah. It invariably shows up as overactive adrenals. Mm -hmm. uh, can, can be because we're actually facing an overwhelm or a very challenging situation. Mm -hmm. um, anyone that's an entrepreneur or, you know, guiding a business might be, you know, right on the edge, you know, creating something that's very new and taking a lot of risk and challenge. And so just mitigating that and balancing that. It may also be that their breath pattern has a tendency to flare in the rib cage. Mm. So we can see that quite often in overachiever patterns. <laughs> that there's a really big that's flaring rib cage. Right. And if that's also present with control, that they're holding in the throat. <clears throat> so then we would categorize them as a type A overachiever. <laughs> so flaring rib cage, huge inhale, lots of energy, and then a hole in the throat with control. Oh. And what happens is if you breathe like that for 20 minutes, yeah. you'll collapse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's the path of overexpansion. Wow. Uh, getting ourselves into a challenging situation with too much growth yeah. that isn't grounded yeah. because we're not able to feel into the roots mm -hmm. and we don't have that solid foundation. Mm. And so I can rapidly see in a breath pattern with a CEO where they're breathing, where they're not breathing, and how they're gonna, that's going to be showing up in their, in their leadership style. Mm. So if there's a lack of breath in the roots, it's going to be ungrounded, which may mean they're amazing for like driving and pushing. And, and, and like a visionary and like, sure. like kind of yeah. projecting that. Yeah, potentially plenty of stuff in the head. If they're clear in the throat, they might be excellent communicators. Right. Uh, however, if that grounded quality isn't present, they're going to go through phases of expansion and contraction mm. that are going to be challenging for investors and staff. Mm. So mm. it's really, it's directly applicable. Mm. How we will go about correcting that really depends on the capacity and resilience of them as an individual. And it's why I like to work with one -on -one, in one-on-one -on -one situations. Sure, sure. Um, so everybody breathes differently. It's like a fingerprint. There might be some different characteristics that are present in their breath. Mm -hmm. And lying them on the table would be the most easy way to see what's moving and then how we go about you know, shifting that. Mm -hmm. Invariably, the protocol is kind of the same. It's like twice a week. Like starting out with someone that's like diving into it, we just do like two two-hour sessions a week for like a month, and that will repattern breath really rapidly. And then we drop down to one session, and that of course depends on you know if they're able to access a breathwork practitioner, yep. specifically a trauma-aware breathwork practitioner in yep. their area. Yep. And if they're not, then I might describe a different protocol where it's like let's go out for three days and let's repattern your breath. Mm. And and that repatterning can happen over the space of of a month or less. Yeah, for sure. Like we can repattern breath in, in two hours. So we, we can make, create fundamental lasting change in the subconscious breath pattern in a two hour session. Mm. Someone will not breathe the same. And you, we can do like a before and after study on like literally videoing the breath and seeing where it moves before and after mm. in two hours is phenomenal. Mm. But beyond that, we can look at resting adrenaline and cortisol rates. Wow. So we can also start assessing blood chemistry and HRV, which are two really great metrics. Yeah. And anyone that's got an aura ring or a, a, the HeartMath wearable will be able to Even actually track that. Even the Apple Watch, I think, has got HRV. Yeah, cool. Comes in as well. So that, I mean, before we get into geeking out around like vagal tone and measuring the vagal, the vagal nerve and how the vagal tone is, is, is showing up, mm. um, yeah, those are just really obvious, simple metrics. And beyond that, like how people feel. <laughs> I, I feel way more relaxed. Okay, well, it's probably working then. <laughs> So, I mean, I like deep dives as well. We offer, you know, a five-day training, which is basically 10 breath sessions mm -hmm. in five days. Mm -hmm. And we will repattern the breath of someone fully and completely mm -hmm. um, in five days. They may have a continued requirement to, you know, keep 
going with neuroplastic change and keep up a breath practice at that point. Mm-hmm. But that capacity to move and be with dynamic breath and emotion will have massively increased, which is including that capacity to hold larger amounts of stress. Yep. Not that that's the answer, <laughs> because balance is the answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and balance every day in each inhale to exhale, depending on what's coming at us, is the answer. Yeah. So that um that segues quite nicely into mm. something that I've been geeking out over a lot recently, which is this uh, this question of how we can train our human bodies to withstand and process greater levels of intensity. Yes. So w- with with that in mind, how do you define capacity from the perspective of the nervous system and how is it different to resiliency Hmm. so thank you so for me capacity is how much of something we can we can withhold we can hold space for okay and resiliency is how rapidly we can empty that out of our system to return to our baseline Okay, say that again. Capacity is... How much is something we can hold. Okay. So like uh, a vessel would have a one liter capacity. This water bottle. Exactly. And then if we drilled a hole in the bottom of that, Mm. the size of the hole of that would be the resilience. So if we increased the hole in the bottom of it, it would be able to empty faster. Mm. So most people start with, you know, say a lung capacity of a certain size. Most North Americans breathe between 30 and 40% lung capacity. Yeah, or less, I've heard, from yeah. pre-diving training. Yeah, wow. Yeah, which is pathetic, like, let's be honest. <laughs> and then we yeah. can, we can, we've witnessed, you know, doubling in that yeah. rate. It's, it's like, um, Led Hamilton describes it as like watering down your own whiskey or your own espresso. It's like, you're yeah, just... <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, it's like, depriving yeah, oxygen is life. We're depriving ourselves. Yeah. yeah, totally. And so our capacity to return to, uh, so it's your, our ability to return to our full capacity is resilience. Mm. So we can have a really stressful day. And then if we sleep overnight, we get up in the morning and we're fresh and we're ready to go again and have another stressful day, we're resilient. Mm. But if we, you know, we have a stressful day and it wipes us out for three, four days, you know, mm. evidently our, our system is at its limit. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I think a lot of people associate resiliency at least it has connotations of strength and of kind of being able to withstand things but i think Mm. to use this kind of water bottle analogy it's more like your capacity to 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 process and to feel or maybe complete the cycles of whatever um micro stresses or traumas have been Mm. created during that day which is a very different process and almost maybe requires a degree of um of weakness or like willingness to feel absolutely the the essence is, is self-awareness for me it's like mm, okay. going through the day when we're facing something that's challenging do we know it's challenging yeah <laughs> and we don't do we know how challenging it is and well yeah. we then understanding of what the implications are in our whole being yeah and then how do we effectively manage that what are the tools that i then have available to me yeah. to move whatever it is i'm feeling mm. and that part of the first thing is what is it that i'm feeling and then you know, really befriending that and then understanding what is it that, that needs to mm. move out of my system mm. chemically. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm. like, so we can get like all soft and move about this, but really I like to approach it from the, the idea of economics. Which yeah, is, well, I, I was just thinking like most of us like economic graduates are handicapped <laughs> in this. Like we don't even know the answer to that first question. Like, yeah. what are we feeling? Like, huh, like, uh, yeah. interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get more specific than that. Can I have some description? <laughs> yeah um yeah that's the essence of it is is really 
getting in touch with those subtle cues and signals mm. so that we can then recognize what is my body telling me that it needs mm. and then how do I meet those needs yeah viewing it as feedback essentially yeah totally and, and it's really cueing us um, you know the, the other interesting piece is when we've been patterned from childhood to ignore our needs or that we've been patterned that a certain need requires a certain response which is inaccurate and then you know we're actually getting a, a false positive from the, the emotions okay which can also be something that we really need to look into interesting yeah so that internal compass can be skewed yeah yeah, yeah. and that's where we start to delve into some some issues okay where it's also rec really important to have some cognitive you know awareness yep and beyond that feedback from someone that's actually capable of effectively mirroring in the form of a qualified therapist potentially yeah 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 no that that makes total sense um so just to speak about i guess my experience with, with this so far i've had i think three hour-long one-to-one sessions with you now and each one has felt very different but mm almost like a profound journey in, in their own right and I think you've helped me to open my own breath all the way down into my into my belly and into my pelvic floor and these sessions have usually culminated in some kind of either emotional release or some kind of DMT experience that have felt just as powerful as anything that I've felt in a plant medicine journey or mm. things like that so I'm I'd love to ask what have been some of the most surprising or powerful transformations that you've witnessed in some of the patients that you've breathed over the years mm, thank you um <clears throat> yeah i think w immediately th there's two two there's three actually that come to mind immediately the, <clears throat> the first one was a a man who'd um gone through an experience of nearly drowning mm. and uh when I guide breath to move through the physical body, I guide it in such a way that it will create a pattern that's similar to a potential trauma. And when it becomes close, when the breath becomes close enough to the breath pattern that was the, the trauma, it triggers it. Mm. So it's like we're picking it up mm. almost. Mm. So when I modulate people through all different styles of breath pattern, it will pick up various different things. Mm. <laughs> and so... It's like you're striking a tuning fork and like looking for the thing yeah. to resonate. Yeah. What's that? You know, and then yeah, it'll pick yeah, it up. And yeah. so that's why no two sessions are the same. Okay. Uh, which has been your experience. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, we picked up, we picked up uh, an incident that was at this near drowning. He came very specifically to me to ultimately relive and complete it. And it was profound. And he went through the full movement patterns of it mm. and sweated through his shirt and yeah, I mean, from witnessing it, if we had videoed it, it would have looked like he was, you know, in a trance state of reliving his drowning. Mm. He went through the whole thing. Mm. And then when he came out the other end, he rested and went into a full state of very high tone parasympathetic, which is like a full shutdown. Mm. And then, you know, opens his eyes and feels ultimately reborn mm. um, as his nervous system is fully recalibrated and returned to its true essence and nature. Mm. Um another the you know the second one that i'd like to speak to um is not one specific but it's been a, there's been quite a few i've been honored to guide women through processes of completing sexual trauma mm. and one incident was really profound um and it's been something that's been quite commonplace is at the end of the treatment when the client stands up off the table when they're when they stand there's an exclamation that they can feel their legs again 
And when they start to walk around, there's like this huge smile and quite often like tears of joy and relief um, that are flooding out of them because there's a recognition that they have been numb mm. in the pelvis and legs. Mm. So whilst subconsciously they've been able to walk, the quality of consciousness that's been able to enter through their nerve pathways is, is so minimized and they've been unaware of that. And so the implications that that has on intimate relationships and trust of the masculine is profound. And so it's a real honor to guide in that way. And of course that shows up a little bit with postpartum and, and any sort of, you know, post-pregnancy and childbirth that's, that's going on there as well. And then finally, um, a, a good friend of mine, um, now a good friend of mine and honored to have trained and guided him in Canada um, this year in, uh, in, in 2019. He's now, he's now a practitioner um, of breath. Um, and without obviously, you know, uh, I know he's very open with his story and loves to share it, but without going into that <laughs> too much, uh, the essence is um, he's a professional snowboarder in Whistler and uh, had some severe lower back injury that led him down a path of using marijuana to m medicate and ultimately manage his pain. Um, and certainly a lot better than any pharmaceutical addictive things that he was being offered by the Western medical mm -hmm. uh, system at that time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cannabis now being like fully available in Canada legally. Uh, it's uh, an option that a lot of people are turning to, to, to essentially manage pain and to numb as well. Um, there's a fine line there. He came to me, um, curious about what I did and just kind of at the end of his tether, he was just like, he'd had enough of being a chronic weed smoker. And so, yeah, we worked together once a week, week three, he quit, fully quit smoking, <laughs> done. Two sessions a week. We did one, one hour a week. Hour yeah. A week. And by the third week he'd quit. Wow. He, um, had this beautiful capacity to, um, allow his body to move however it needed to whilst, whilst he was being guided in a session. And so he would do these like amazing, like rotations and twists and hip openings, and his own <laughs> chiropractic adjustments. Like okay. his spine was just clicking, like, right. and he was fully in a non-ordinary state of consciousness and able to be with a lot of pain. Right. Um, and so, wow. yeah, I mean, he had chronic digestive issues, was, you know, quite, quite thin, weak. Anyway, the transition in him physically is unbelievable. Like he's now, you know, very strong. Um, he's he's worked last winter as a snowmobile guide mm. which is grueling on the lower back mm. um and he's yeah he's he's doing amazingly well and came through the training program in in uh, 2019 and is now um practicing in whistler so to see someone go from you know the state ultimately the physical mental emotional state he was in mm. right the way through to now holding space for other people and having these profound experiences and actually being a very gifted practitioner mm. has been uh, incredibly fulfilling. For yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, that's beautiful. Um, and I had, yeah, I had chills as you were describing both of the first two, actually, it's, it's really, really powerful and profound. Yeah. What did you feel like you learned? living with the Canadian tribal elders and what do you think that we in the West can learn from their worldview? Mm, thanks, Johnny. There's a, a deep reverence and respect for this idea of oneness and for recognizing the cycles of life and the rhythms of nature. Mm. And that's a, a way of living in harmony 
with that which we are. And it's quite a fascinating worldview. It doesn't create a separation between humans and the environment. It creates a oneness between humans and the environment. So I am the food that I eat. I am the water I drink. I am salmon. I am bear. And there's a recognition that our cells are dying and being reborn all the time. You know, and it's said it's every seven years, the whole body would be totally renewed. And so that also gives us an opportunity to recognize that we can recreate ourselves. Which is a really interesting <laughs> contemplation if we circle back to the ideas of neuroplasticity and epigenetics, sure. how much of our being physically, um, but also emotionally and mentally is now within our own conscious domain of, of creation. Mm. Uh, and if knowing that we'll be fully reborn again, essentially in seven years time, mm. that opens up a, a whole different perspective on life. Mm. Beyond that as well, it recognizes, um, you know, the native way is, is that I am a part of nature and it is a part of me. And I am breathing the same air as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, we recognize the interconnected nature of, of all things. And that can be a little alarming at times, but and suddenly we realize like, oh, wow, like I'm actually just made of like, you know, the mushrooms and the, the salmon and everything else. And so there's this idea of almost that that part of us that wants to be special unique or different starts to kind of like <laughs> claw against that it's like no like <laughs> i'm unique yeah. and so that's uh that moment of recognition that um we are of course all unique individuals mm. uh, and at the same time we're all interconnected mm. and how do we hold that duality in our mind at the same time uh continuously and so part of sitting in circle and sitting in ceremony has been that the recognition that each person is unique and is individual and is also part of a collective. Mm. And that paradox is part of the joy of this human experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. I mean, I just, I just took a big gulp of water and it's interesting to think that like that a few seconds ago wasn't me and now it, it is me in some way. Yes. And like almost wonder in the same with breathing in the air right now, like where does that where is the barrier between the air that is in this room compared to the air that comes into my lungs right now and becomes part of me? Yes. Like it, it, it's, yeah. it's a bit of a brain, like... <laughs> yeah, well, there's a quality there. was like, who is the me that's curating the physical form? Right. And when we come back to the medicine wheel teachings of body, mind, emotions, and spirit, mm-hmm. it's really clear that the spirit is the observer of the body, the mind, and the emotions. Mm-hmm. And in the native tradition, then we can start to create some sense of uh comfort in that it's like okay i am the spiritual being uh and and without making it you know esoteric or woo woo, we can actually have an experience where i am feeling my emotions i am witnessing my thoughts i am moving in such a way that i'm feeling my body and so the it's not so much about saying any of these things it's more about feeling them and some of the traditions of ceremony like sweat lodge actually brings through a very deep purification where we have, you know, the sensation and the felt senses in, in our body of knowing that I am the observer. Mm. And in that moment, there's a disillusion of attachment to the physical form. Mm. It's like, yes, I am this body and I am curating it. And I am more than just that. Mm. And it, so it's like this idea of, of not suppression, but living with it. Uh, and that's also, you know, aligns very much to the philosophies of Tantra. I don't need to suppress this. I can enjoy it. I can enjoy all things in this fleshy existence <laughs> knowing that it you know i am more than that and yeah. they're all gateways to awakening to that truth 
Yeah, no, totally. And I find it fascinating looking at these different types of rites of passage or ceremony mm. that are used to almost create that witness perspective. I also think of mm. um, swimming in the sea or, or, or maybe ice baths, where, again, that level of intensity kind of puts your mind into that witness perspective where you're aware of these very intense sensations, but you're not caught up in them. It's beautiful. And that's why probably, you know, one of the reasons why people uh, chase after those peak experiences like skydiving yeah. or, you know, skiing as an example and skiing, you know, at speed in a flow state mm -hmm. was one of my ways of accessing mm -hmm. ultimately what was a spiritual practice totally. <laughs> and skiing became a spiritual practice. Yeah. Cooking is the same when we're in flow and we've got, you know, bills like five or six checks on yeah. and we're cooking and we're in that flow state, it becomes our meditation. Mm -hmm. And what I'm curious about is how we can chase after those things mm. um, because we're not comfortable with ourselves. Uh, and, and that becomes our daily habit, our daily practice that I don't want to feel what's in me. So I'm going to chase after something externally that's going to give me a sensation that I can then feel comfortable with myself again. Mm. But how our nervous system can even get patterned into a loop in that way. So that's the essence of addiction. Mm. I get used to feeling a certain way and I need to do whatever it is I do to get back to that felt sense. Mm. And for me, you know, breathwork is an opportunity to create that witness state mm. where I can feel the emotions without the attachment or without the need to change them by seeking alcohol or sex or whatever it might be that's culturally and socially acceptable, mm. but is also an addiction. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, it feels to me like we're very much on the frontiers of the science in many ways. And I would imagine there's fewer than a few hundred clinical breath workers practicing globally. Yeah. And I'd love to ask what is still known and unknown from a clinical perspective? And what are some of your colleagues in Canada still mapping out? What are some of these frontiers that we're just discovering? Yeah, wow. That's like a, <laughs> it's a, big, it's a big question. That's but, uh, all right. I'm really I'm curious sure to hear what, what comes up for you right now. Thanks, bro. Um, yeah, like I suppose just going immediately to, to my own personal practice, like I'm mapping frontier every morning, every morning in my right. pranayama, mm. I'm continuing to find my edges mm. and to be with them and sit with them. Um, and so that's a continued process of inquiry for myself. Mm. Um, as an example, this morning, I found that I could move my diaphragm in a slightly different way that pressed into my liver that created a very interesting sensation. Um, that's something I've never felt before. So every morning I'm mapping out more areas of my own being from the inside mm. through my own conscious awareness. <laughs> so, so that inquiry will, will continue until it doesn't anymore, but that might be a while. And that's, you know, that yeah. most mornings that's an hour of, of pranayama and, and being with myself. Mm. Um, mm. So that's sort of on a personal level. Uh, the team of biology of breath in Canada are continuing to practice, you know, in a clinical setting, in a clinical way with trauma-aware breathwork. Mm -hmm. And we're continuing to dive into deep trainings where we're just continuing to explore our own, our own patterns. Mm -hmm. We're, we're uh, guiding people in such ways that then they're sharing their experience afterwards. So ultimately, Johnny, every time I'm in clinic, I'm learning because no two breath patterns are the same. But even when you come in for your next session, your breath pattern's totally different. Yeah. And then when we do the next one-on-one, -on -one, which is actually tomorrow, yep. like, it's going to be totally different again. Yep. And so there's a continuum here where I am, I'm always learning. And I, 
you know, what I love about breathwork and any breathwork practitioner that's approaching it from this way of deep listening and uh, an awareness of trauma is that every treatment they do, they get better. Mm. Uh, so that's fun. In terms of the, you know, circling back to the real essence of your question of science, like what's known and what's not known. Mm. Yeah, it's like we, we know like, you know, like 0.0001 of a percent of the great mystery of what's going on in the body at any time. Mm -hmm. And I don't. I don't know if we'll ever <laughs> cognitively understand any more than that. Like, to be yeah, honest with totally, you. Totally. It's almost like the more that we're learning, the more the concentric circles of our ignorance are expanding. The more we're realizing how little we know. It's so beautiful. <laughs> it's such a beautiful way to say it. And, you know, my teacher, Robin Clements, has been so clear with me and with my cognitive bias, right. where it's like, like, yeah, it's great. You're explaining all of this and it's all making sense. And, you know, yes, we know this about the endocrine system. Yes, we know this about the branches of the nervous system. Mm. And, and then we just don't know. And and as soon as we lie someone down to breathe, it's a hundred page document I can write for a one hour session. <laughs> like literally, I can I and if I stream my consciousness of what I'm seeing with somebody, like I can speak nonstop for a full hour of what I see in the breath, what I'm sensing and feeling, and what I'm witnessing in them. So that dialogue would be totally available. I mean, we could record a like a one hour breath session. That would be fascinating. Yeah, maybe we could do it with my session tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bring the microphone. We'll just record the whole yeah. thing. So we yeah, could stream yeah. it and be like, and it would just be like a dialogue, but that's present in the breath translations. Yeah. When I lie someone down and I translate for training, yeah. what I'm, I'm speaking directly to what I'm seeing and I'm speaking to directly what I'm feeling with my hands and the quality of touch. Mm. And it's amazing how practitioners can rapidly understand that. Because it is a translation, it's a language. Yeah, and, and, it, language. and it seems like a big part of that is um, almost the more people that you that you lie down and that you see, it's like you're increasing your pattern recognition capacities, which are allowing that translation to come through. And so, I suppose to um, to rephrase the question slightly, like what are some of the what are some of the things that you've discovered for yourself recently, and maybe um, how does that tie in with what? we're starting to learn about like the vagus nerve and, mm. and things like this, which are just kind of on the frontiers of these new fields of science. Thank you. It really is that every time I go into clinic, I witness patterns and I start to correlate the data mm -hmm. and that data is being correlated in my subconscious. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the more present I am and the more I'm in my own breath pattern, the more capacity I have to remember that. Mm -hmm. So just recognizing I, do have a natural tendency to be able to remember that sort of thing really easily and well. It's like your own form of flow. It's kind of like yeah, own. yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's I suppose one of my gifts that I recognize that I'm now embodying in a in a fuller way and accepting in a fuller way within myself. Mm. Um, and so every time I correlate story to breath pattern to story afterwards, mm. uh, you know, I do that 10, 15, 20, 100 times, and then I start to see that that's what's showing up consistently. Mm. So then I know that as soon as someone says story. And I, and I pattern that immediately think about, you know, maybe 15 other people that have had that same experience and I've witnessed their breath. I have automatically a hypothesis of how that will look. Mm. And then when I lie them down and my hypothesis is proved to be accurate, I know that that's now true. And so, you know, I'm, I can guarantee that, you know, and then until I can't, because some exception is going to prove the rule again, <laughs> the essence really is still like, there's a way. Yeah, yeah. So if I see that, you know, as an example, we're seeing someone present with a lot of control, that's going to show up in their throat on their exhale. Mm. And then I know that that's the first place that I'm going to address or speak to so that we can get more of a rhythmical flow of breath moving through them. Mm. Uh, and that pattern recognition is available to document. 
So that's the essence of the next sort of frontier that we're doing is, is how we can map out certain patterns and certain breath patterns mm -hmm. and document basically the correction of that. Mm -hmm. The challenge that we may face is that someone's throat may not release until their hips have been released. Okay. So it's a play. Yeah, yeah. So whilst I can see the throat's holding, that person isn't going to release their throat until the lumbar spine that's directly connected in childhood developmental patterns with the cervical spine mm -hmm. is, is both of them simultaneously are supported. Mm. So it might be that we need to like rock the pelvis and support the back of the neck and then we just see it drop and release mm. and it will be visual like we'll see that and the breath will change and how it moves. Mm. So the, I, I think my, my dedicating my life to this um, and, and following this path of the breath, knowing that it's what I'm here to do and I'm, you know, I'm very clear on that. And knowing that this, you know, I'll barely scratch the surface in this lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. yeah. And you'll and probably pave the way for people to continue the practice and continue yeah. the lineage, I suppose. Yeah. And I think that will be a continuum of, of not knowing. Yeah. <laughs> which is great. Which is, is really all what this podcast is about in many, many ways. So I, I love that. Um, yeah. So the other thing I want to touch on is... <laughs> wow. Omnip. We're, we're in a bit of a rainstorm here in Bali. Yeah, so for, for <laughs> listeners out there, it's it's monsoon season here in Bali and there's some pretty intense rain going on. <laughs> um, but yeah, what I wanted to touch on was it really feels like this interest in breathwork is, is exploding, particularly in the last couple of years. And particularly, Bali to me feels like the epicenter in many ways. Um, but I think a lot of people, and myself included to some extent, are unclear on the differences between the the different types and brands of breathwork i know there's this holotropic which was mm. initially pioneered by stan graf mm. there's there's nasal breathing there's rebirthing there's shamanic breathing um and we've talked a little bit about this before but i'd love for you to just um kind of help the listeners understand how conscious connected breathing which is the breath that you practice mm. is different from some of these other styles out there yeah, thanks, Johnny. I think the first piece to mention is it's trauma-aware breathwork. Mm -hmm. uh, um, what that means um, from my perspective is it's honoring the balance of the nervous system, specifically the two branches, the sympathetic and parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at the autonomic nervous system and we're allowing that to be the guide of the session as opposed to you know dishonoring that, in my opinion, by forcing. And so as soon as force or over-efforting is present, we're moving someone potentially out of their window of tolerance mm -hmm. and into an area that's going to put them into a state um, of over-activation or disassociation. Mm. Which for listeners out there who might be familiar with Wim Hof, for example, I guess that's an example of... It can be. I mean, it can be practiced safely okay. and it can be something that would just shoot someone straight out. Straight out. Yeah. Or, or shut down. Yeah, so, I've passed out myself before. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And so, that, you know, what we're really looking at is a prescription. So the kind of the two, the two easy ways to describe it is this is prescription breath work, right. which is Wim Hof or Pranayama. Um, alternate nostril breathing, say, is an example. And something like an alternate nostril breathing with a square breath of 5555 five, would be a prescription. On the other end of the spectrum, we've got what, what is termed as conscious connected breath. Mm -hmm. Within CCB, there are a variety of different schools. Mm -hmm. You touched upon rebirthing. Uh, there's TB transformational breath from Judith Kravitz. There's my teacher, Robin Clements, breath wave. And now there's the new school of, of uh, Vayu breath work that I've started with Carmen Gann and Jen Field, mm -hmm. which is specifically trauma aware clinical breath work. Mm -hmm. 
And so all of these different schools sit in the realm of conscious connected breath work. Some are in and out through the nose, some are in and out through the mouth. Mm -hmm. The essence is that the breath is connected and the breath is guiding. And that's again, slightly different than holotropic, which is a forced inhale, exhale. So whilst it is a connected breath and we could describe it as being a conscious connected breath, it sort of lives within the realm of, of CCB. What we know to be true is that a forced inhale and exhale is very activating. Mm and specifically in and out through the mouth for creating a lot of volume. Mm. So I kind of, I, I would say that holotropic lands in its own little realm. Mm. Um, and as I've mentioned, and I'll say it again, it's not something I personally practice or I would personally recommend. Mm. Uh, and so conscious connected breathing um, in the style that I practice and from the lineages of Leonard Orr and Judith Kravitz and Robin Clements is much more a, a, a quality of deep listening and balance. <laughs> Thunder. So oh, good. So I, I um, you know, incredibly grateful and appreciative of, of Robin and his way. Um, he teaches this sort of super soft and strong approach. So it's like the stronger we are, the softer we are. And it's this idea of um, the inhale being vibrant and the exhale being a, a surrender. And I love the quality of embracing that in my own life. Um, it's not quite balanced i work four days and have three days off <laughs> and i recognize um that there's a real need for that you know uh that tenderness with the breath mm -hmm. and and so that also you know it flows really well into trauma awareness mm -hmm. and allowing the breath to be the guide what we're really looking at is there's a wisdom and an intelligence that's far greater than my conscious mind mm -hmm. i'm not the one that really knows what knows is the spirit of the breath what knows is a natural intelligence that's below the level of my own consciousness, that's deep and subconscious within the person who's breathing. And what that allows is full agency back to them. Mm. And that's a radical self-actualization process where they recognize that they are their own healer. And it yeah. is the spirit of the breath that is moving through them, that's breathing them, that allows them to take agency for their life again. And then as we kind of circle back to that idea of creation, okay, well, how do I curate myself to live the most joyful, meaningful existence in harmony with nature, supporting other people to do the same? And I think that's, that shows up in the breath pattern. <laughs> that's, that's really profound what you just touched on. And, and I think the, the major shift is moving that agency back to the patient and, and your Thank role you. as a breath worker as being almost like a guide or kind of midwifing and yes. holding space for their the intuitive wisdom of their body and their breath to do the healing thank you for you yeah but, but that is a radical shift for most of the population and certainly you know western medicine yeah absolutely it's i'm not i'm not the expert the client is yeah and the spirit that's breathing them is the expert mm -hmm. and as soon as i think i'm the expert i've, I've totally i've firstly i've dishonored them I've dishonored the wisdom that's moving through them. But beyond that, I've exhausted myself because I have to do something now. Mm. And now I've become the doer. And in that moment, there's no more flow for me and I'm going to deplete myself. Mm. And so if I can be in a conscious communication, my nervous and endocrine systems are supporting their nervous and endocrine systems mm. in what's now a co-creation and dialogue with a force that's far greater than ourselves that's moving through us, which is the breath, suddenly it becomes easeful again. So there's nothing I have to do in a session and there's a lot I can support. That's, that's really powerful. And I think also a wonderful metaphor for life in general in mm. some ways. Yeah. 
Um, and, and, totally. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I love, I love that idea of, um, of, of, of the inhale and the exhale and being strong and weak at the same time. I know Brené Brown talks about strong back, soft front. Oh. And I think for myself, speaking personally, I've been through this journey of learning how to surrender. And that's for me, it's come through free diving and mm. Vipassana meditation and, and breath work to some extent mm. as well. And it's something that we're, we're not taught or or even encouraged to be weak in this in this way that creates profound strength. And we feel very scared when we do kind of let our guard down in that way. Yeah, thanks, Johnny. Um, yeah, so I, I'd also love to ask, um, I'll be including links to Breathwork Bali and your Instagram and everything mm-hmm. in the show notes. Uh, where would be the best place for listeners to both find out more about you and also to learn about any potential trainings that you're offering next year. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Um, in at this time, I think the most easeful way to connect with my general musings is on Instagram. I enjoy the vibration of that platform, so it's my name, Edward Dangerfield. Uh, also, as you mentioned, Breathwork Bali. <laughs> so Breathwork Bali uh, on Instagram as well, and also breathworkbali.com. Uh, as you know, I'll be working on a book proposal in 2020. Indeed. And so we'll be, uh, you will be crafting a, a book that will be a combination of my own personal story, along with a variety of different prescribed practices and, uh, the essence of the breath. Um, so that's going to be coming through. Uh, so just, yeah, hang tight for that. Uh, and, uh, in terms of trainings, we will be going live on the Bayou breathwork, uh, page in the next few months. And that's an opportunity for someone that feels the calling to train in some in conscious connected breath work in a trauma aware way uh, we'll be offering trainings between canada and bali and so the schedule that some of that's available at uh, breathwork bali right now as well uh, and if those if anyone's feeling the call to come and train with us uh, we have you know a full 400 hour accredited program which is aligned to the gbpa the global breathwork practitioner alliance uh, and we're really looking at creating a very small team of highly skilled, highly qualified breath workers. Um, so it's more of an invitational process at this time. Uh, we like to work with people who are going to follow that path. And we also allow people to go at their own pace. The essence is embodying breath. Um, so it's not like a natural progression where you get certified. You, you're certified based on your capacity to actually embody, uh, which is... <laughs> really the essence of what we're teaching here we can we can teach what we are uh not what we know hmm. Hmm. yeah i i love that um in the meantime um i'd love to hear so last couple of questions what have mm. been some of the biggest influences in your work and i know that you're you're continuing on a lineage here in many ways so for people listening what might be some starting points for those who are eager to learn more and, and dig into kind of the more rigorous science that is emerging in the space? A combination there, I think, Johnny, of um, that still that, that idea of inquiry around embodiment. Mm-hmm. Like we are all human beings. And if we want to learn about the human, then, you know, your, your field of, you know, study and experience and your own journey in the last, you know, few years is really been inspiring for me that's ultimately what we need to do is is 
become more conscious and aware of our own, of us, of our own selves. <laughs> and so yeah. on, the, on the one hand, a yoga asana practice prepares us for pranayama. It's not a means to an end. It, it, for me, asana is the foundation of moving into breath work. We're allowing the body to become a vehicle and opening up the body through, and you know, this is the words of Iyengar. You know, th this is really the, the foundation of what then becomes the breath, which is the foundation of the spiritual practice. Um, that aside, like some amazing authors that I that have really inspired me. Um, I, I love the work of Bruce Lipton, uh, Biology of Belief. Yeah. yeah, his book, you know, that was really profound and again, shifting my worldview. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza's both of his books, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself, which dropped into my, my field about five years ago, and then Becoming Supernatural, which I read right when it came out a year and a half, two years ago. Yeah. Those have both been really profound. Mm -hmm. in, uh, in the world of trauma, <laughs> <laughs> uh, just battling the thunder here. In the, in the world of trauma, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, The Body Keeps Score, mm. and also the work of Peter Levine and Stephen Porges. For me, Peter Levine's um, In an Unspoken Voice is a, is a beautiful work. Mm -hmm. And studying polyvagal theory has helped me to really understand what's going on. It's getting quite intense. <laughs> it's super intense. It's like torrential rain right now. Um, what was the name of, Steve, of Stephen Porch's book? Um, so mostly, I haven't actually specifically read anything uh, that he's authored, okay. other than, than just going into um, a lot of the online Okay. Uh, work that's available. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and then just sort of some of the visuals on polyvagal theory that, that are crafted right now really help us to understand it. The, the words are one thing, but when we look at, uh, it's essentially a bell curve of movement between sympathetic and parasympathetic. Mm. And just understanding how, from an evolutionary standpoint, that, that came to be, that's been really useful in understanding mm. how we operate as a human. Mm. Mm. Um, there's a book by an author called David Lee, which is is called breathwork, sensed energy, and chaos magic. Breathwork, sensed energy, and chaos magic. Yes. Okay. And it's very much like starts grounded science and moves into like full esoteric shamanic teachings. Okay. Which I love. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, and so like it starts out by mapping that every breath pattern has a corresponding emotion. Okay. And it actually maps quite a few of those, and you can practice those wow. different breaths and and feel the sensations that move through. Okay. And then it moves into some fairly mystical studies of how when we lie people in a circle, yeah. the vibrational frequency that's actually measurable, it's created mm. um, and a variety of other different. Wow. Interesting. There was someone I read things. about recently who was uh, connecting a device up to plants that was then measuring uh, different frequencies that were created during breathwork circles and meditations. And the, yeah, wow. Yeah. I, and and the, the plants played a different sounds depending on what state of the journey people were in that's fascinating it's kind of crazy yeah <laughs> yeah i mean that's that's where we're getting to with you know some of those realms is that idea that when an endocrine system is activated massively it's mm. vibration that it emits mm. in an electromagnetic resonance changes wow. and it's measurable mm. and so we can measure the resonance of gland function because the nervous system is electric and so when we start to measure the resonance of individuals, we can also look at mapping heart rate variability and vagal tone yeah. along with the resonance of a nervous and endocrine system. Huh. So we, we, we have a capacity to measure some very interesting metrics. Yeah. And, you know, if any, re if any listeners out there 
have an opportunity to connect anyone up, I'll fully volunteer to shave my head and be fully like hooked up <laughs> and map what I can create by changing my breath pattern. Wow. Because I know the altered states of consciousness that are available to me. Huh. And I'd, I'd really like one of my hopes in the next couple of years is to, is to map a variety of those huh. and the corresponding breath patterns. Because when I drop into a certain breath pattern, I know what neuroplasticity is available yeah. to me yeah. and that can ultimately heal trauma. Yeah. And that's available simply with breath. And if we can map specifically what prescribed breathing, you know, will create certain states of consciousness, then we can peel that back. So yeah, there's some, there's a lot, I want to sort of circle back to the frontiers of what we can discover. Mm. Right now, there's so much we don't know and there's so much we can know mm. that would be so beneficial. Yeah. And ultimately all we need to do is connect our breath and practice. Like that's that's the other <laughs> irony. We can make this as complicated as we want, yeah. but it's really so simple. Wow, it's fascinating. And this sounds like it's potentially going to be interesting research for the book coming yeah. coming next year. And I will I will look up and include links to all of the books that you just mentioned. Um, and so the final parting question that I'd like to close with is uh, inspired by a real K line, which is try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. Mm. So with that in mind, what is the question that you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? Mm. Thanks, Jane. I love that <clears throat> live your way. And this most simple self-inquiry in any moment is how am I breathing? Beautiful. Well, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Shani. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.